Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Whenever writing or reading a military history, there can be a temptation to take sides and root for one combatant or another, in a similar way as when watching a sports competition, even more so when you have a close affinity to one of the sides. So as an Englishman, it is difficult to avoid a tendency to see the Battle of Hastings, the most famous event in our medieval history, from any other than the English perspective However, as with all battles in this podcast series, my intention is to give a satellite's eye view of events, to give an equal perspective from all sides, sources allowing. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the Battle of Hastings of 1066, part one of two. In an earlier podcast, I told the story of early Britain and the Battle of Brunanburh. In this great battle of 937, King Athelstan of Wessex defeated an alliance of Vikings, Scots and smaller British kingdoms, and established England as the most powerful kingdom of the Isles. Indeed, since the reign of Athelstan's grandfather, King Alfred the Great, England had developed into one of the best, organised and richest states in Europe. The future after Alfred can go in one of four directions. Firstly, the Anglo-Saxons could continue in power. Alternatively, they could be invaded by one of their three foes, either the Norwegians or Danes, or a young state just across the channel called Normandy. All made serious bids for control, and this is the story of how the Normans, who must have seemed like unlikely contenders in the beginning, came out on top, in the most famous battle on English soil, the Battle of Hastings. In spite of the victory at Brunanburh, there would be further waves of attacks from Scandinavia in the following century. The relative peace survived only as long as Athelstan lived. On his death in October 939, the northern region of Northumbria and its capital York immediately rebelled. It was physically separated from southern England by the River Humber River, the greatest cultural and political divide in early English history. The area had only partly been integrated and resisted control for the next 15 years. Between 939 and 948, seven major military expeditions are recorded to have occurred between the West Saxons and the Kings of York. The chief of the rebels for much of the period was a colourful character by the name of Eric Gladaxe. His father, Harold Finehair, had been the first king to unite all the petty chiefdoms of Norway. After Harold died, Eric fought to inherit Norway, but was unsuccessful and was forced to leave, so sailed westwards with a small army of family and supporters who had stuck by him. Initially, Eric's exile was a mere plundering raid on northern Britain, 
but then the leaders of York, hearing of his reputation, invited Eric to become their king. Eventually, though, Eric was defeated and killed in 954 in the Battle of Stainmore in the Pennine Mountains of northern England. The Northumbrians lost the war and became a province of the Kingdom of England, albeit a recalcitrant one. The House of Wessex had emerged triumphant and enjoyed a period of relative calm during the reign of King Edgar from 959 to 975. Instead of waging war, Edgar was able to spend time improving his kingdom's administration. The framework of English counties stabilised at this time in the form which lasted until 1974, exactly a thousand years later. Among Edgar's other achievements was the improving and standardising of coinage and revival of monasteries. However, when the king unexpectedly died in 975, the problems began. Any new king could not count on loyalty before he had won it, but both Edgar's sons, Edward and Ethelred, were under age and so found it difficult to assert their authority. The elder son Edward was crowned king but became unpopular and was murdered four years later. His place was taken by his brother, who became known as Ethelred the Unready. The name Ethelred is a compound of two Anglo-Saxon words, Ethel and Red, meaning noble counsel. The nickname Unready is a corruption on the word Unred, a pun on his name meaning no counsel, with connotations of evil counsel and treachery. The new king's reign started at a time when Viking attacks were renewing, and this time England did not possess a strong enough leader to deal with the threat. From the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, Ethelred comes across as indecisive, constantly self-justifying and prone to acts of impulsive cruelty at the wrong moment. The way in which he came to power worked against him. Although he was probably too young to have been involved directly in his brother's murder, the act cast a dark shadow over his reign from the beginning. From the 990s there were constant hostilities from overseas. The Viking raids were highly destructive, designed to achieve maximum damage or extort the largest amount of tribute possible. Ethelred had a difficult choice between paying off the aggressors or fighting them. He usually opted for the former, perhaps since the financial cost of battle might have ended up as much as the payoff, without any certainty of success but this strategy probably only encouraged more Vikings to seek their fame and fortune in Britain. The stress and strain on the government was demonstrated when in 1002, Ethelred and his council ordered the massacre of all Danes in England. This achieved little except senseless deaths and the antagonising of the local Danish population, who were now more likely to side with their overseas brethren. Another policy chosen to combat attacks was to try and prevent the harbouring of Vikings by neighbouring states. For geographical reasons, the Duchy of Normandy was the most important of these. The Normans were themselves only a few generations away from their own Viking ancestors, and sometimes opened their ports to raiders returning from England. 
that in 991, King Ethelred and Duke Richard of Normandy made a treaty against aiding each other's enemies, and ten years later Ethelred married the Duke's daughter. So began the fateful association of Normandy and England. The formation of Normandy is shrouded in some mystery, because the original Normans were ninth-century pagan warriors from Scandinavian, who were illiterate and so left no written records. By the end of the 10th century, they had adopted the faith and culture of Christendom, and their scribes reinterpreted their past, creating a Norman myth which historians must try to untangle from reality. As I described in the earlier podcast on the Battle of Leckfeld, the Empire of Charlemagne, which had extended from the Pyrenees to Saxony and northern Italy, was divided between his three grandsons on 840 to form separate kingdoms. The Western Kingdom, West Francia, was to become the embryo for the nation of France. However, under weak central leadership, power devolved within the kingdom to the different regions. Unlike in England and Saxony, where the threat of raiders united peoples, in West Francia, the population came to trust local lords to be better able to defend them than could their distant king, and so power in the region became much more devolved. In the year 888, the Western Franks elected, instead of a descendant of Charlemagne, the Count of Paris by the name of Odo. They did this because of Odo's success in resisting the attacks of the Vikings, and although when he died the Carolingians returned to the throne, a long-term repercussion was that there was now an alternative dynasty to the Carolingians. Power in France would take a couple of centuries to re-centralise, a process I will describe in a later podcast. It was Odo's successor, Charles the Simple, who oversaw the birth of Normandy, in 911, the new king made a treaty with a Viking leader, Rollo the Walker, apparently named so because he was such a big man that no horse could carry him. According to Norman myth, Charles granted Rollo a fully-fledged duchy, but history sees it far more likely to be a less formal provision of a small area around the town of Rouen, in exchange for conversion to Christianity and assistance in repelling similar raiders. King Charles probably hoped this arrangement would be temporary and not last more than a generation. In truth, Normandy would soon grow into one of the most powerful states in Europe. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. For information on this period, we are fortunate to have the works of three 11th century chroniclers, William of Poitiers, Odoric Vitalis, and Dudo, whose accounts we can compare and biases counterbalance. They were, however, written a century after the events and require interpretation, since they deliberately shroud the Norman's pagan past with a nobler, more dignified myth. The Rollo of Myth was the outstanding Viking leader of the day, in truth, he was probably one successful war leader among many. However, under him and his successor, William Longsword, realities slowly approximated to myth. The Normans steadily expanded their area of domination by both force of arms and skilful diplomacy, and at the same time adopted the West Frankish culture. The transformation of the duchy into a fully-fledged member of Christendom continued under the long reign of Richard I, the Fearless, 942-996. to He merged the role of Viking war leader with West Frankish statesmanship. On the one hand, territorial expansion was based on brute force and attracting warriors to the court who he could afford to reward with war booty. But Richard was also able to successfully rebuild effective administration and restore churches and monastic communities. The Duke's legitimacy came now not only from his ability to wage war and defend the community. He successfully copied the model set by Charlemagne, portraying himself as defender of the church and poor, as dispenser of justice and as fount of righteousness. Another change was that by the end of his reign, the Norman leaders now spoke only French, instead of the Scandinavian tongue of their ancestors. Despite distancing themselves from the Scandinavians, the successor of Richard I, Richard II, nicknamed the Good, permitted Viking raiders to harbour in his lands on their way back from attacks on England. This angered King Ethelred, who ordered a raid on Norman coast. Richard's forces responded quickly and defeated the English. So instead, Ethelred tried diplomacy and agreed to marry Richard's sister, Emma of Normandy. Whether the Norman-English treaty had any effect in reducing Viking raids on England, it was certainly insufficient, since the attacks only got worse. The first decade of the 10th century saw regular Viking attacks, led by Sven Forkbeard, who was then king of both Denmark and part of Norway. The Danish army repeatedly rampaged through most of southern England before being paid off with vast sums of money. By 1013, England's defences were in such a feeble state, Sven saw an opportunity to turn from plundering to outright conquest and led an invasion fleet. Northern England Disillusioned with Ethelred's government, accepted Sven almost immediately. By the end of the year, the Danish king had also taken Oxford, Winchester and London, and Ethelred was forced to flee to exile in Normandy. 
However, Sven died the following February, and while the Danish army chose his son, Canute, as the new king of England, the English recalled Ethelred. The English were temporarily successful, reinstalling Ethelred on the throne. Canute fled to Denmark to gather reinforcements, but only had to wait a year for Ethelred to pass away, prompting him to return to take back England. This, however, was not as easy as he hoped. A son of Ethelred, Edmund Ironside, claimed the throne himself, fought valiantly and quickly won several small battles, convincing many to flock to his side. However, Edmund was ambushed by Canute's army on the 18th of October, 1016, in what became known as the Battle of Ashingdon in Essex, and this time Canute was totally victorious. In the subsequent negotiations, Edmund was able to remain King of Wessex, leaving the rest of England to Canute, but died shortly afterwards. Whether his death was suspect is unknown, but the result was that King Canute now became undisputed ruler of England. During Canute's reign of nearly 20 years, England moved more into the sphere of Scandinavia. Danish influence had been important since the arrival from Jutland in the 5th century and reinforced by the settling of many Danes, especially in the north and east of the islands. The part Scandinavian population of Northumbria and the Danelaw would not have greatly resented Canute's taking of power, and may even have seen it as a culmination of the victories of their countrymen over the last two centuries. Indeed, even for the non-Dane Anglo-Saxons, a common Germanic background may have enabled a form of Anglo-Scandinavian fusion, since it is unlikely the two peoples differed greatly in either social custom or law. Canute left the administration of England much as he had inherited it. He appointed some of his entourage in positions of power, but retained most of the native leadership. He even married Athelstan's widow, Emma, the daughter of Richard I of Normandy. In 1019, Canute inherited the crown of Denmark and became king of a great northern empire, which also included parts of Norway and Sweden. He became active in European grand politics, even arranging for his daughter to marry the Holy Roman Emperor, Conrad II. This meant, however, that he was unable to devote all of his time to England. Instead, he divided the kingdom into four earldoms, Northumbria, East Anglia, Mercia and Wessex. By the end of his reign, the earls had become the most powerful men in the land, especially the Earl of Wessex, Godwin, who is going to play a very influential role in the years ahead. When Canute had first invaded, Godwin had opposed him, but later, over the consummate politician, switched his allegiance to the Dane. By all accounts, Canute was a level-headed and effective leader. During his reign, England enjoyed a period of relative calm and prosperity. He died in 1035, and if any of his sons had survived him for more than a few years, they may have been able to forge a stable northern empire, which included England. However, all his sons had died by 1042, and so the English invited the son of Ethelred the Unready, Edward, to become king. 
He came back from Normandy, where he had been in exile and became known to history as Edward the Confessor. From the beginning, King Edward found it difficult to assert his power. During the time of Canute, the four earls had got used to making decisions of state. Edward held a smouldering hatred of Godwin, since he blamed him for murdering his brother, Alfred, but was in too weak a position to rule without him. In spite of this, he not only had to work with the earl, but had to agree to marry Godwin's daughter. Godwin was now the most powerful man in England, although counterbalanced by the other earls, plus a group of Norman advisers Edward had brought with him from the continent. In 1051, Edward found an excuse to exile Godwin and his sons, but only managed to get rid of him for a year. They returned the following year with an armoured force, which gained the support of the navy and general population, so compelling Edward to grudgingly restore his earldom. At the height of his powers, in 1053, Godwin died. His eldest son, though, easily stepped into his father's shoes, becoming Earl of Wessex, and now himself the most influential man in court. In the next two years, two more sons of Godwin were able to inherit earldoms, and so tighten their family's grip on power. As the years went on, it became increasingly clear that King Edward would have no children. Perhaps he deliberately had no children with his wife, in order to spite the Godwins. But either way, the question of the succession now loomed large. Who would try and claim the throne? The future was uncertain. Please join me next week for the concluding part of the story of the Battle of Hastings, when Duke William of Normandy arrives on the coast of England to demand the throne for himself. The website for this podcast series is www.historyeurope.net. There, there's now a donate button where you can contribute to the podcast. Any contributions you can make towards the running of the podcast, such as its hosting or the, or the purchase of books, is gratefully received. On the website you can also leave comments on the individual episodes, or if you prefer, you can send an email to me directly at carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. Thank you for listening, and until next time.